All right, the word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we find ourselves in the Last week of Advent, we come to our final section of Isaiah. Pastor Kevin, I hope, I didn't have the recordings, but Pastor Kevin has taken us through the first two sections, which can be summed up nicely by the prophet Isaiah, in his very first verse of chapter 56, which is the beginning of the last section. 56 verse 1a says, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice, and do righteousness. If you can sum up what we might call the ideals or maybe the, the, the paradigm of the first section of Isaiah, which is chapters 1 to 39, we would say that the Lord has given us a big idea. And the big idea, namely, is keep justice. Do righteousness. In verse 1c, it says, And my righteousness be revealed. This is a summary of the promises of chapters 40 to 55, the second section of Isaiah. So thus far, we have the orders. We have the orders, keep justice, do righteousness, and we have the promises. And my righteousness will be revealed. Yes? Now, as we know, the prophets often spoke to the Jewish nation regarding their, what we might call their immediate circumstances, but often what was prophesied went far beyond Israel and actually pointed to something greater than themselves or greater than the immediate context. The immediate context of Isaiah's prophecies was the nation of Israel. In this particular case, in this last section, we find what we might call a practical application of how to be servants in God's coming kingdom. But what are those current circumstances? Israel is currently where? I don't know if Kevin covered that. I'm sure he did, probably. Where is Israel at this time? They are in Babylon, right? And what are they doing there? They were enslaved and deported out of Judah after the fall of Jerusalem in July of 586 B.C. So Isaiah is preaching and prophesying to an enslaved people in a foreign land. And what is Isaiah telling the Jews in captivity? Keep justice. Do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Prepare for salvation, for it is near. God's righteousness will be revealed to you. It's exciting stuff. And the people had to be feeling pretty good. Kind of like one of those we're getting out of here moments. We're going to be free once again. 
God is going to do a mighty work against our enemies. We will be going home. Isaiah was preaching good news to the captives. He was foretelling the deliverance of the Jews out of Babylon. It might be helpful at this point to review why the Jews were in Babylon in the first place. If you remember from the Jewish history, first the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC. And when you read the history of the two kingdoms after Solomon's passing, the northern kingdom, made up of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, to put it lightly, they kind of went off the proverbial rails. They abandoned the Lord. They became like the original inhabitants of the land. As God describes, they did abominable things, including child sacrifice. They did what the previous uh, tribes did before the Jews got there. Over and over again in the account of 1 Kings, we see the kings of Israel being described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And successive kings being more evil than the previous ones. In 722 BC, we could say that God had had enough and sent the Assyrians to utterly destroy the northern kingdom. When reading 2 Kings, we see a somewhat similar pattern with the southern kingdom of Judah. The difference being that there were certain kings at certain times that did what was right in the sight of God, thereby holding off the judgment of God for an additional 140 years before the southern kingdom became a stench to God, who then sent the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem. God sent destruction to his people because they did not keep justice. They did not do righteousness. They acted wickedly and forsook the Lord and forsook his laws. They ended up reaping what they sowed. But God in his mercy wasn't done with the nation of Judah quite yet. He would offer a reprieve. He would offer salvation and freedom in his mercy and in his grace. The question might be, how will the kingdom be ushered in? This brings us to our text today. We're going to start with 61, 1a. There's many, if you'll notice, there's many scriptures in each verse, so they're split up by line. So, 61, 1a says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Immediately, if we know our Bibles, we would recognize this verse as being quoted by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 4 and verse 17. Luke chapter 4 and verse 17, where we find Jesus quoting Isaiah in this exact spot. 4.17 And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it, is, uh, where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing. This was, of course, said early on in Jesus' ministry while preaching in his hometown of Nazareth. So while we must interpret the Isaiah passage according to how Isaiah meant it in his immediate context, we now know that this that there is another, what we might call greater, and need I say more important, interpretation of this scripture in light of Jesus' claim here. In the original context, it is Isaiah who is authorized to proclaim these promises that we're going to see uh, in a minute to the Jews in Babylon. Jesus takes these words and promises of Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God himself, and he applies them to himself. Interestingly enough, if you'll notice, Jesus didn't read the whole thing. He only read to verse 2a, stopping short of the very next line, which states, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus' concentration was on what we might call the positives. He came to share some good news. Elsewhere, we have Jesus saying things like, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Elsewhere, he says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, in his incarnation, he had a mission. And that mission was to seek and save the lost. He didn't come in the flesh to condemn, but in order to save. Hence, at this point in Isaiah, he stopped. He came with good news. The bad news could wait till later. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Old Testament saints had the Spirit of God. We must understand that. Many people misinterpret that, that the, the Spirit wasn't really poured out till the New, New Testament times. It was only a matter of magnitude, not a matter of, of whether the Spirit was with the people or not. The Old Testament saints had the Spirit of God. Isaiah had the Spirit of God. The other prophets had the Spirit of God. King David had the Spirit of God. If you remember, the carpenters and the craftsmen of the tabernacle and the temple had the Spirit of God. Great works were done with the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit among God's people. Jesus had the Spirit upon him. Isaiah speaks of this in chapter 42 where he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations." In Luke 3.22, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven came and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. See, whenever God in his infinite wisdom has a job for his saints to do, he equips them with the Holy Spirit in order to enable them to get the job completed. Jesus came to accomplish his mission. He was given the Spirit in order to accomplish it. As Matthew Henry writes, Jesus was fitted and qualified for this work. Why was Jesus given the Spirit and the mission? Isaiah tells us, Because the Lord has anointed me, verse 1b. 
Due to confusion with regards to what exactly is meant by anointed, I wanted to take just a little time in explaining the practice and the meaning of it. See, in its broadest sense, it means to pour oil or ointment onto a person or object in a ritualistic fashion. So it's a ritual that is done to signify something. The primary purpose of anointing was to ritualistically set something or someone aside for a special divine or holy use. That's what anointed is. We see this in the Old Testament where oil was poured out on the tabernacle. The oil was poured out on the tools. The uh, the oil was poured out on the priests. If it was associated with the tabernacle, it was poured with oil and set aside. It was anointed. Indicating that these were set aside as holy objects used to serve the Lord. Saul, the first king of Israel, was anointed by oil set aside by God to lead his people. We see in the New Testament where anointing with oil was commanded in terms of healing. Finally, Jesus is the anointed one. The very term Messiah is derived directly from the Hebrew word for anointed. Messiah. In Christ's three offices, prophet, priest, and king, he is the anointed one and was proven by his working miracles and ultimately his rising from the dead. All believers are anointed by the Spirit. If you are a believer, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, you have born again, you have been anointed. Anointing isn't a special thing. This is the problem, is we have this idea from certain Bible teachers and certain Bible preachers that say silly things like, the anointing is upon me. No, the anointing is upon all believers. All of us who are born again have the anointing. Anointing in the first sense of being set aside as holy is what we would call a spiritual action. And it is done strictly by the Holy Spirit. We're going to revisit this a little later on. But for what purpose was the Spirit sent? We see in verse 1c, to bring good news to the poor to bring good news to the poor. As you can imagine, when Isaiah gave this prophecy to the people of Judah in Babylon, there were many, if not not most, of the Jews were what we might call poor. Slaves generally don't make a lot of money. It's not common for slaves and those in captivity to accumulate a lot of wealth, as I'm sure you can imagine. Isaiah brought good news to the poor to the enslaved in Babylon. But in the bigger picture, as spelled out by Jesus, he was sent to bring good news to the poor. Now we have a couple of examples in the New Testament that help us understand what Jesus is meaning here. In James it says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The poor, due to their struggles and wretched living conditions as compared to the wealthy, are generally, according to James, they are generally more predisposed to hearing good news. Rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom. This is a message of hope to those who have it hard in this life. 
But we also have from Jesus himself on the Sermon of the Mount where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who are aware of their great need of God and are longing to be closer to him. Jesus begins, or sorry, Jesus brings wonderful news to those that long for God and long for his presence. For he is bringing the kingdom to them. He is with them at present, meaning Jesus. He is with them at present and will be with them via the Holy Spirit once he ascends to the right hand of God. Isaiah was speaking in physical terms. Jesus was speaking in spiritual terms. We must also not miss that good news in Greek is the word euangelion, where we get the term gospel. Jesus was bringing the gospel to not only Israel, but he was bringing the gospel through the apostles for the salvation of the entire world. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, verse 1d. Isaiah was sent to encourage captured Jews in Babylon that they would have hope in this life, that they would not forever remain captives in Babylon, but would see freedom. They would see their home again. You can imagine the feeling of hopelessness and heartbrokenness that they would have felt in captivity. Would the darkness of their lives ever see light again? Would their children ever see their homeland again? These issues had to have weighed heavily upon them. After all, if you think about it, the northern kingdom that was destroyed 140 years previous to this, they, they didn't return home. They had not returned. So would the southern kingdom suffer the same fate? Isaiah boldly declares on behalf of God, No! No, I have come to tell you that there is hope in God. He will heal your broken heart. He will make you whole again. Jesus, on the other hand, isn't speaking about captives in a physical sense, but captives in a spiritual sense. There are those out there, those that aren't completely unaware of their precarious positions as lawbreakers, that now have an off-ramp to hope, a way to heal their brokenheartedness over their sin and their shame. Could you imagine, just for a minute if you will, coming to a knowledge of your sin, right? Coming to a knowledge of your wretched condition and that deep-seated feeling of shame that comes with it. But then realizing that you have nowhere and no way of getting rid of it. What do you do with your sin? What do you do with it? You can weep and you can wail all you like, <clears throat> but there is no hope to be found anywhere. There is nothing you can do to undo the law-breaking you have done. There is no way of making amends to God for your transgression. And then Jesus came. And then Jesus came. And Jesus says, I have come to heal your broken heart. In me, you will be healed. In me, you will find peace. What glorious news. God has sent a way to be healed. 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound versus E and F, one E and F. Isaiah's good news in this regard seems pretty straightforward. You are captives, you are slaves in Babylon, and I give you good news. The Lord will set you free. Babylon will not hold you. Cyrus the king did exactly that in 538 BC. He released the Jews to return to their homeland. He released the Jews in prison as well. They were a free people once again. Jesus declares liberty to the captives and prisoners to go free. Was he talking about the Jews being under the thumb of the Romans? We know that's not what he meant, but some during Jesus' time on earth thought that. Those that were awaiting the Messiah believed he would be a military leader and he would be someone to rise up and he would kick out the Romans and Israel would be free to rule uh, free of this rule and Roman oversight by a pagan nation. This is also why the Sanhedrin and the leadership of Israel wanted Christ dead. Why? Because they enjoyed the status quo. The leadership enjoyed the status quo. They were sort of in charge. They were in charge to some degree. They lived what we might call high on the hog and many, many found a way to be wealthy under Roman rule. They had no interests in the, in the uh, Romans leaving. And this may sound surprising, as the Jews were a very proud people. But this sort of thing happens even today. Those that are gaining the system have no interest in changing it. You must realize that, young people, as you get to uh, learn more and more about the political system and how things work in this and other countries, you must come to realize that those at the top have no issue with the gaining of the system. They want the status quo. So don't be surprised by that. No matter who it hurts because of it, they don't care. So if Jesus wasn't referring to the Romans, who was he referring to? All those not found in Christ are held captive by sin. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 25b to 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Notice, Paul's, <clears throat> notice in Paul's exhortation to Timothy that before anything else, God must grant repentance to those that are ensnared and captured by the devil. God moves first. He grants repentance, which then leads to what? It leads to a knowledge of the truth. You cannot know the truth of God until God grants you repentance. Once you repent, you will come to understand the truth of God. You come to your senses, as Paul writes. What does this mean for those that have not been granted repentance? It means that they are not in their right minds, but are ensnared or captured by the devil in his ways to do his will. Christ has come to release those held captive by sin and they can be released from debtor's prison because he has come to pay the fine. Christ has come to do that which we 
could not do. He came to pay a debt that we could never pay and we are made free because of it. Now we are quickly running out of time and I've only completed the first verse. I've got two more to go. Some things never change, do they? So what I'll do is quickly comment on the remaining two verses, just short little comments to give us the complete picture, okay? So, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, verse 2a. This is an allusion to the year of Jubilee that we can read about in Leviticus 25, where every 50th year all debts were canceled. All slaves went free. All land went back to their original owners. The slate was wiped clean, so to speak. With Christ, prophet, priest, and king, he declares the ultimate jubilee, the one who wipes the slate clean. Your sins are forgiven. Your relationship with God is restored. And this is not for Israel alone, but this is for the entirety of the world. The gospel sets the captives free. The gospel sets the captives free, including those who never knew God, who were outside of the covenant and they had no hope. This is the end of Jesus' quotation of Isaiah, but we'll continue. And the day of vengeance of our God, verse 2b. This verse is a foil, what we call a foil of 2a. God is a God of justice, and those that are the enemies of God will be defeated. This is a proclamation of war. In Isaiah's time, Babylon's days were numbered and was to be destroyed by Cyrus the Great, who in turn then released the Jewish people to return to their homeland. In Christ's day, it was a declaration of judgment against Satan, sin, and death. And for sake of time, I'll bundle the remaining scriptures into one thought, if I may. They are all connected, as you'll see. To comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Verses 2 and 3. So instead of mourning... Instead of sackcloth and ashes, the hope that is brought with Isaiah in the Old Testament with Jesus in the New is that of celebration. God brings joy where there is sorrow. You see the terms used here. Beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Oil of gladness instead of mourning. Garment of praise as opposed to a faint spirit. And what is the result? Oaks of righteousness. Oak is a hardwood, often called the mighty oak, right? And with Christ and his promises, God's saints can stand tall. They can stand firm, a planting of the Lord, and not for your glory, but for his glory alone. So, in conclusion, see how fast that was? In conclusion, saints, if you are saints of God, you have been given a most precious gift. You have been given the spirit unto eternal life. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Free from sin, free from bondage, free from guilt. Your sins have been washed away. Christ came and fulfilled the law 
perfectly. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He had a mission when He came. He had a mission. And He completed that mission. When He declared upon the cross, just before He gave up His Spirit, what did He say? Tetelestai. It is finished. It is finished. Indeed it is. So now what? You ever get to the point, I remember when I first came to Christ, I understood the gospel, was born again. And I went to my pastor, I said, now what? Now what? I didn't like what he said. Maybe I'll tell that later. I'm reading again J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. I would strongly recommend you do. In fact, as you guys move through your uh, discipleship program, holiness is in the top five, I think. You, you will get there. Uh, it's an outstanding resource. Anyway, in the introduction, Ryle reminds the reader that justification is a sovereign act of God. You don't contribute to your justification. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. We are declared righteous before God because of what God has done, not anything we've done, not anything we've earned, nothing we've accomplished. That being said, sanctification is a different story. Our sanctification, our becoming holy, more holy, more Christ-like, is a work that we, as Christians, must actively pursue. This aligns with Isaiah's prophecy that we started with today in chapter 56. Remember? Seek justice. Do righteousness. We often times wonder where God is in our lives. How come, how come he feels so far away? Practical question, but are you seeking justice? Are you doing righteousness? We cannot expect God to fulfill his promises to a godless people that don't know humility, that don't bow the knee. How does one feel free? How does one celebrate victory over sin when we continually revel in it? Like the dog who returns to his vomit or the sow who after is washed returns to the mud. 1 John 2 and verse 20 says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. If you are a Christian, if you've been born again, you have been anointed by the Anointed One. And because of this, you have knowledge. What kind of knowledge? You have true knowledge. You have knowledge of God. You have knowledge of self. You have knowledge of the law. Paul writes in Corinthians, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. We can know wonderful and beautiful things. And I'll let the Apostle Paul have the final word here today. Listen carefully. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us 
all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And God's people said, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he took on flesh and he dwelt among us and you gave him a mission and he accomplished that mission. And in that mission, we now have joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. He is our King. He rules and reigns over all. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We look forward to that day. Lord, go with us this week as we contemplate these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Turn everything back on. For the Lord's Supper, before we partake, I just want to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 29, paragraph 7 states, Worthy receivers, outwardly partaking of the visible elements in this sacrament, do then also inwardly by faith, really and indeed, yet, yet not carnally or corporally, but spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified and all benefits of his death. The body and blood of Christ being then not corporally or carnally in, with or under the bread and wine, yet as really but spiritually present to the faith of believers in that ordinance, as the elements themselves are to their outward senses. <laughs>